Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's talk Brexit and let's get some opinions on it because I can't figure out for the life of me if we're really actually close to an agreement or whether we're still uh, miles away. Therese Raphael is going to clear it all up for us. She's a Bloomberg Opinion Editor uh, in London. So, Therese, are we going to get a Brexit deal or is this sort of more uh, sort of tenuous negotiating that's going to get shut down on both sides? Well, there's one final bridge to cross, um, but it's maybe the wobbliest and most difficult bridge to get across. Maybe that's the way to put it. So there is a deal uh, that has been agreed between the UK, the European Union, Ireland crucially um, has signed off on that. And that is a huge accomplishment because it looked, um, you know, only say 24 hours ago, like that wouldn't happen. The, the, you know, giant capital letter but here is the Democratic Unions Party of Northern Ireland, a key ally for the conservative government, uh, is absolutely opposed to the deal, has said they will not vote for it. And the question is whether Boris Johnson can uh, gather enough votes in the House of Commons from uh, his own party and other parties to make up uh, the the numbers that he needs. So, Therese, I know you wrote a column on this this uh, the Northern Ireland issue, um, and that is continues to be a major uh, stumbling block here. Historically, the DUP has been able to block uh, such a deal. What is the sense right now? given maybe where the parties are just at in terms of exhaustion? <laughs> so normally a no means no from the DUP. Uh, I think that Johnson probably is hoping um, that there's some chance they'll change their mind if, for example, he has enough votes in the common. The reason is this. He's offered the DUP reportedly quite a large sum of money to go along. And this is the DUP's moment of maximum leverage. If they uh, if they say no and the deal doesn't go through the commons, then they're going to get a share of the blame for that. And we don't know how that would play out in a, in a future election. The DUP may find that it gets hurt. If they say no and the deal does pass, the DUP may have given up an opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to, to gain some benefits out of it, whether monetarily or in terms of, you know, future influence. So the DUP has to think very hard about whether it's going to stick by by the position. And then the key question is whether their allies in the Conservative Party, which are now known as the Spartans, those that refused Theresa May's deal three times before um, on the grounds that it hurt the unionist cause, among other, among other things, uh, whether they will stick by the DUP or instead decide to back Boris Johnson's deal. And 
I think once we know that, it will be easier to say whether this deal has a chance on Saturday. Meanwhile, of course, the Labor Party uh, by Jeremy Corbyn is you will is expected to throw a spanner in the works. It's already declared the deal worse than Theresa May's deal. So it's not clear it gets through the House of Commons. I think it's got a better chance than May had. Um, but but that may not be saying enough. A better chance than May's had. What does this deal have that is so much uh, better uh, in terms of being more conciliatory to all sides than Theresa May? Right. Okay. The main difference is that Theresa's May's Theresa May's deal included what was known as the Irish backstop, which was a sort of insurance policy, but it locked the UK into the EU's customs union indefinitely if other solutions weren't found to take it out. Now, that was completely uh, anathema to the DUP, to uh, to conservatives, even to many in the Labour Party, because it, it tied the UK for, you know, uh, an indefinite period of time to EU rules. This deal gets rid of that. Instead, it aligns UK goods with the EU um, uh, for regulatory purposes, but it also has this sort of innovation on customs where the goods that are destined for the UK would pay UK customs. Goods that might go to the EU through Northern Ireland would pay EU customs, and there'd be a sort of committee that decides which are at risk of going to Northern of going through to the EU. So it's complicated. It's a bit messy. It's kind of even hard to explain. But crucially, what it does is it gets rid of the backstop. And that was what Boris Johnson promised. And that's what gives it this um, acceptability for conservatives. It also has a consent mechanism so that the Northern Ireland parties can themselves approve it periodically every four years. Uh, Therese, just in about 20 seconds, can you just give us a sense of what's going to happen Saturday? What's supposed to happen? What's scheduled to happen? I'll give it to you in five seconds. There's going to be a vote. Okay. <laughs> and beyond that, and beyond that, I can't tell you whether it's going to pass. All right. So we're going to pay attention to that vote Saturday. <laughs> and we'll, hopefully we'll have some uh, more clarity the next time we speak to you, which will probably be next week. Therese Raphael, thanks so much for joining us. Therese is a Bloomberg Opinion editor covering European politics and economics especially Brexit. She is the go-to voice. Uh, she does that from our London Bureau. You can read more on this and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion and on the terminal by typing in O-P-I-N. Go. Well, our good friends at Morgan Stanley reported earnings, uh, better than expected earnings. Stock is trading up about 3.7% today. To get the latest on Morgan Stanley and all the big investment banks that have reported this week, we welcome Allison Williams. She's a senior analyst covering global investment banks and asset managers for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Allison, um, Morgan Stanley kind of bringing up the rear for the big investment banks this week. What are the key takeaways for you? So for Morgan Stanley, uh, you know, strong a quarter, at least versus the expectation sort of across trading and fees. I think uh, importantly that their wealth margin um, is running at the higher end. And, and the bottom line is really that they are well within their range to make their target for the year. And I think that's sort of the, the kind of takeaway as we're exiting the quarter, who who's sort of on track to meet their targets and in a good position for next year and who's not. And so um, Morgan Stanley falls into the positive bucket. Uh, JP Morgan also there. Bank America showing uh, really positive trends uh, yesterday. 
Uh, however, Citigroup, I think it's going to be a closer call. They basically said they're going to do everything they can to make that 12% uh, return on tangible equity uh, target, common equity target. Um, next year, my guess is they're going to have to lower uh, their target for next year. And then Goldman, that doesn't really manage to a target, at least not now. We'll probably hear uh, more from them on specific targets next year. Yeah. But I think um, it was a combination of costs coming in higher than expected, as well as uh, disappointing banking fees. So I want to talk about debt trading revenues, because I like talking about them. But also, <laughs> with Morgan Stanley, that really was the front and center. Their beat was really remarkable. Uh, debt trading revenues surging 21% instead of dropping as analysts had predicted. Do we have a sense of what drove that? So there were a few things that they talked about. Uh, basically, credit trading was strong for them, um, as and rates was a little weaker. That was similar to comments that they had made in September. The commodities business was also um, good for both uh, Morgan Stanley and Goldman this quarter. Think about what was happening um, with energy uh, prices. But um, Morgan Stanley's business, which we haven't talked about in a while, and commodities can be lumpy, so that may have been a part of it. But J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley both having really strong quarters on the front, uh, on the FIC front. Right, on the FIC front, I'm wondering how much of this is taking business away from Deutsche Bank, and that's what we're seeing. So we're hearing less, I think, specifics in terms of FIC where they're gaining share, and I think that's really going to be the number to watch next week. We definitely are hearing about market share gains in prime, whether they're specifically calling it that or not. Prime brokerage, meaning the the business catering to hedge funds. Correct. And that is a business where, um, you know, Deutsche Bank sort of never recovered coming out of sort of their their, legal concerns of 2016. That business sort of continued to slip away. That's a business that they um, have stepped off of. The Bloomberg News reporters have been talking about um, different market share wins um, from the banks. And we heard from the banks themselves, you know, Bank America talking about higher balances, Goldman talking about higher balances, and Morgan Stanley, perhaps the most specific talking about higher prime balances um, and wins from Europe. So, Allison, you know, having listened to the conference calls this week, which I know you have for the big investment banks, what are they saying about the regulatory outlook? It's, and I know there's been some talk about rolling back some of the regulations that were put upon uh, the financial services industry after the, or the uh, financial crisis. What's the status of that? The one uh, regulation that I think bank investors are most uh, focused on, we're most focused on at least, is – um, you know, the, the final capital rules. And there's two rules right now that are sort of in progress. One relates to uh, one capital measure and one relates to the other. Um, one's going to make things tougher and one's going to make things easier. But the net-net, um, things could be tougher for Morgan Stanley and, and Goldman because they're basically tailored to um, sort of charging them more for certain related investment banking businesses. And so I think that's the key that that people are watching. However, we've seen in the last couple of stress tests and capital returns, uh, the banks sort of being a little bit uh, more conservative as as we sort of wait those final rules. There were um, questions sort of throughout the calls on the political landscape, different things that have been going on. I think managements generally were trying to change the subject and and not kind of go down that path. Shocking. I, I will say, I mean, honestly, they don't want to answer these questions because how can they possibly uh, have a lens out? I am curious, though, just at a larger level, how much are U.S. banks just absolutely trouncing the European and other global peers at this point? So to your point, we've seen that um, 
in the numbers. We've seen it in the trading numbers and we've seen it in the fee numbers over the past few years. We've seen it in the first half. And so it's it's interesting because it's get, it gets tougher and tougher to do a read across from the U.S. because all FIC broadly beat expectations. So every single bank beat in FIC. Equities was a little bit mixed, but in aggregate, better. Um, and we'll find out next week, UBS reports, Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank uh, the week after. Barclays is also sort of in that mix. Um, we'll find out exactly how much of the better numbers are coming from uh, those share gains. Allison Williams, the busiest person in Bloomberg uh, these days. Thank you so much for being with us. Allison, Willis, Allison Williams is a senior analyst covering global investment banks and asset management for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Wex Software, Wex Inc., Melissa Smith, President and CEO, joins us right now to talk about the electronic payments business. Uh, Wex is, you can find out on New York Stock Exchange, trading under the symbol WEX, about a $9 billion market cap. Melissa, thanks so much for joining us on the phone from Portland, Maine. I want to talk a little bit about Wex. What is kind of the key driver for your story right now? I know that about two-thirds of your revenue had historically been about the truck fleet fuel payments business, but uh, I know you've been trying to diversify that. So tell us a little bit about what the current growth drivers are. Sure, sure. So we're a financial technology service provider, and she talked about one of the industries that we're in is fleet. We're also in healthcare, travel, and accounts payable. And if you look at the, the growth, and I'll talk about healthcare just for a minute, um, if you have an HSA or an FSA or, or any type of tax-deferred account, we're the technology that sits behind that. And so one of the growth drivers for us in that business is the fact that you continue to see people moving to high-deductible healthcare plans that have HSA accounts uh, associated with that. So as you see that movement, we continue to add accounts. Uh, and as healthcare costs keep changing, that's a place where we um, see continued growth in our business. Uh, it's, it's a place that we've been playing a lot of focus over the last, um, last several years. So your shares are up almost 50% year-to-date, so um, not too bad. Doing something right. <laughs> well, I hope you have stock options. I'm trying to figure out going forward uh, what the barrier to entry is. This. What's the competitive landscape for you? Yeah, in each of the, the industries we're in, so, so first of all, we operate at scale. We have about $80 billion worth of spend volume going through our business in our different verticals. So we, we have scale. We use our own internal networks. So think of that as um, relationships that we've developed ourselves and then through some of the networks. Um, but really, the, the two big barriers for us is that the technology is highly integrated into our customers and partners, and, and they're of all size. They're really large companies and really small companies. Um, and what we do is, is uniquely solve problems that sit in a particular vertical, whether that's fleet or travel or healthcare. 
So I know you have some pretty aggressive uh, growth targets, 10 to 15% revenue growth, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe 15 to 20% on earnings. Where, what, what are the businesses that are really going to drive you to that growth? Because I, as I look at the fleet business, that seems to be a slower growing business. Yeah, you, um, if you look at the fleet business, it's, it's a predictable growth. We had a, a big step up in growth this year in fleet. Uh, we migrated over both Shell and Chevron's commercial car portfolios. They were big contract wins for us, and we've gone through the implementation process for that. So you get a little bit of lumpiness sometimes in the growth in fleet, but it is, it's predictable. And then at the same time, if you look at the growth that we're getting in healthcare and travel, there are really good macro that sit behind that, meaning that the markets are growing themselves and we're benefiting from that, both in online travel. So our biggest customers in, in travel are online travel agencies. So as they continue to see a lift in their business, we have seen the benefit of that. And then we keep adding new partners and customers globally. We just entered on the travel side and to the UAE. And so as we continue to extend the presence that we have and the capability that we have, we get a natural lift from that. You have an incredible viewpoint into just the thinking right now of executives at some of these companies that are affected uh, by politics, I'm thinking healthcare, or by international trade tensions, online travel companies. And I'm wondering how much uncertainty you're feeling from them and whether there's a reluctance to invest in some of your products because of that. Actually, I'm not seeing uncertainty around um, or an unwillingness to invest. What I have seen over the last several years is a desire from some of the, the biggest companies that we work for to have us work on innovation with them, which has more to do with the trend of technology changing, and it's a strength of ours um, to innovate, to bring new tech into the marketplace. And so we have seen more of an interest of doing things like we created a product called uh, Driver Dash, which is mobile enablement of fleet payments where you use facial recognition to turn on the app and the app itself turns on the pump as a driver sits next to it. So think of a, someone who's moving a Ford F-250 that's pulling up to a, a pump. The technology makes that transaction that much more secure. And that's something we did initially with ExxonMobil and then now we're, um, we're doing it with Shell as well. So I, I think that there's more of a desire to um, to partner and to partner with people that can move quickly in the space, which I think is a benefit of ours. Melissa Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Melissa Smith is President and Chief Executive Officer of WEX, uh, joining us from Portland, Maine. President Trump is coming under some widespread criticism for his Syria policy, and it's not just from Democrats this time. Right now, the, some Democrats, some Republicans are also uh, challenging that policy. To get more, we welcome Stephen Dennis, Senate reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. So, Stephen, give us the latest on how this whole Syria policy is playing out for President Trump in Washington. Yeah, I mean, it's basically overwhelming bipartisan opposition to his decision to basically let Turkey invade without uh, us taking any real steps to prevent them. Uh, you know, we're, we're starting to put in place some sanctions. Uh, and, and, of course, Mike Pence was sent over there to talk to uh, the Turkish president. But basically you have a lot of uh, Republican leaders over here who are aghast that the Kurds who uh, fought alongside us to help defeat ISIS are being basically left to fend for themselves. 
uh, as the Russians and Syria forces and, and, and Turkish forces close in on them. And so, you know, we, yesterday in the House, there was an overwhelming vote. Only 60 Republicans stood with the president against this resolution that effectively rebuked him for not standing up uh, for the Kurds. And now in the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell, the, the Senate Majority Leader, says he wants an even stronger resolution um, on Syria. So uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, wants to have action today on a resolution. So we'll see what ends up happening. Uh, in the meantime, it's sort of a fluid situation on sanctions. The House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee is looking at sanctions, and now we have uh, on the Senate side today uh, Chris Van Hollen, Democrat, and Lindsey Graham, Republican, sometimes chief ally of the president, but on this, his chief opponent uh, will be introducing sanctions uh, later today, yeah. much, much stiffer than what the president has been putting forward so far. So House Speaker Nancy Pelosi currently talking, actually, uh, and yesterday she made some news uh, when she talked about the meeting with President Trump, with House leaders, with congressional leaders uh, about the Syria issue, saying that President Trump had a, quote, meltdown. Do we have a sense of, first of all, whether that's accurate, but second of all, uh, what the broader implications are of the pushback the president is getting uh, from Republicans in Congress? Yeah, I, I, you know, there definitely was a dust-up. Um, Pelosi uh, basically accused the president on issues including Ukraine and Syria uh, and other issues as well, saying that all roads with you lead to Putin and, and basically are helping out the Russians and Russian foreign policy. And uh, the president wasn't happy and, and called her a third-grade politician, whatever that means. Um, and uh, at some point, the name-calling got to be so much that uh, Schumer, uh, Steny Hoyer, and, and Pelosi decided to get up and leave. This is not the first meeting where one side has gotten up and le uh, left. Uh, it was months ago when the president sort of stormed out of a meeting uh, that he had called on infrastructure, and he was upset with investigations into him. And, of course, now the House is poised to impeach him in the coming months. So th this is not that big of a surprise that they are at each other's throats, uh, if you will. Th there is uh, one thing I'm watching is whether uh, Republican angst and, and upset over Syria impacts the impeachment calculus over here in the Senate. Uh, some Senate Republicans and Democrats I've talked to don't see it affecting it right now. But, you know, if, if you actually get to a point where some Senate Republicans are considering uh, voting to convict the president, which right now none of them are really there. Um, this could just be one more feather on the on the scale, uh, because Mike Pence is seen as somebody who would who would have had a different foreign policy in this case. So, Stephen, just quickly, what are next moves here? I think the next big decision point is uh, what does Mitch McConnell do on this sanctions package? Does he want to bring something real with teeth to the floor that would defy the president? Um, it's one thing to have a non-binding resolution, um, which he's done before. Uh, it's another thing to actually start having Congress take over some big pieces of foreign policy. That's something that he's going to be probably fairly reluctant to do. But he's getting a lot of pressure from Republicans who want to do something to push back on uh, what they what they see uh, happening over there with uh, our allies uh, getting killed. Stephen Dennis, thank you so much for spending time. I know you've got a very busy schedule. Stephen Dennis, Senate reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Washington, D.C.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.